are listening to the Elephant in the Room podcast with your host, Sutta Singh. Each week, we will bring you a diverse range of inspiring speakers on issues of inequality and inequity. You will hear stories about fairness, justice, belonging, and about best practice for creating a more inclusive workplace. So, if you are an individual or leader interested in a fairer, equitable, compassionate society and workplace, this podcast is for you. My guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast this week is Kirsty Leighton, founder and managing partner of award-winning consultancy, Milk and Honey PR, the highest scoring B Corp agency in the world. Good afternoon, Kirsty. Thank you for being a guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast today. Lovely to be invited. Thank you so much. Okay, so let's jump right in. Uh, give us a quick introduction to who you are and what you do. So my name is Kirsty Leighton. I am the founder and I've given myself the very exalted title of Group CEO of Milk and Honey PR, an organization that I set up six and a half years ago. So six and a half years ago, it was just me with my almost 30 years experience now, we've been able to grow that from just me in six years to now 50 people in three continents and four offices. Wow, that's amazing. So when and why did you decide to launch your own consultancy? Did you have an aha moment? I know that women are fairly risk averse. And often when they take that first step, it's because they're not satisfied with what is happening in the workplace, or there's some sense of dissatisfaction. Well, that was absolutely the case. I was incredibly fortunate that in the last 25 years prior to studying Milk and Honey, I had worked for some amazing, always PR agencies. So I'd always been on the agency side and I'd learned an awful lot during that time. I got the opportunity to work in lots of different types of PR. But what I found is that sometimes the intention of what an organization's policy was looking to achieve was perhaps slightly missed in practice. And there was just these little niggly bits where I could see what the intention was, but the practical delivery wasn't quite delivering it. So my last role, which was at Hudson Sandler before I set up Milk and Honey, uh, they were actually coming out. They were doing a management buyout from Huntsworth. Um, And I just thought, actually, do you know what? Do I really want to wed my future to this organization as brilliant as it was? I was there as MD for five years and thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought, actually, do you know what? Now is the time if I'm going to do something on my own to do it. But talking about bravery and women wanting to do something in perhaps later life, for me, I was in my mid-40s when I set up Milk and Honey. And both my parents used to actually run their own businesses. And both of them were incredibly intelligent and incredibly hardworking. But they, bless them, did not have an ounce of commerciality between the pair of them. So every couple of years, we moved to a slightly smaller house. So I was always terrified of running my own deal and being responsible for paying other people's rent and mortgages. So I put it off and put it off. But during my career, I was given plenty of opportunity by my leads, very often female leads, actually, that allowed me to open new divisions, open new entities, open new countries. And so I then had the practical experience and probably more importantly, the confidence to be able to do it myself. Yeah, I think that's so important. And that's very interesting, actually, that you speak about your parents and them running their own businesses. And I think sometimes that would make you very risk averse. I've seen some people who've been 
I think, put off because they've not seen their parents have success or it defined in the parameters of success that we have today. But very interesting to hear that. So, Kirsty, we live in a world where purpose has become such a buzzword, especially in the last two or three years post-pandemic. How integral are values and purpose to how you run your business? So it's been the platform from which I've built the business. So when I started Milk and Honey, I wanted to create an agency that behaved a little bit differently. I wanted to create an agency that didn't sell hours, but instead was able to sell ideas, work on strategy and be a real partner. I wanted to only work with organizations that had a positive impact on people and planet. And so therefore be quite picky from that perspective. I wanted to work with organizations that were ambitious. Now, I would imagine most organizations like to call themselves ambitious, but I wanted to work with organizations that were going somewhere because that way around it allowed both myself selfishly and the team that I was building around me to be able to continue to learn and to progress. And I wanted to create an organization that could demonstrate its values and bring them to life. So for us, there were five founding values. The first was around bravery. Let's not ever be afraid to try something. And just because it doesn't work, there's you yeah. never lose, right? You either win or you learn. Yeah. And so I think from that perspective, that was important to us. Energy, I am one of these types of people. My husband always says that I, I have no dial. I'm a switch. I'm either on and I'm full on or I'm off. And so for me, being able to have lots of energy giving individuals around me was important. Respect is hugely important, I think, as a mother and as a wife and as somebody who plays a role in our community. I think being respectful of all different types of backgrounds, ages, cultural sensitivities, neurodiverse sensitivities, both my husband and both my sons are neurodiverse. And so I wanted to be able to create somewhere where people could be celebrated, not where they're tolerated, where different ideas and ways of thinking could come together and we could all respect one another. I then wanted to create somewhere where collaboration was really important. I think especially in the type of organization that I'm part of in terms of being a professional services consultancy, very often some divisions come in when there are separate P&Ls. And so I've constructed yeah. an international business where actually everyone is paid on the top company. So therefore, it's encouraging everybody to work together, irrespective of which division or which country they sit in. And then the last one was passion. Let's make sure that nobody has to do anything that they're not excited about. Very often, again, in consultative roles, you're not necessarily always given the choice as to what you're working no. on. And I wanted to make sure that nobody worked on more than five clients, that nobody worked on anything that they weren't passionate about. And so anyone can ask off any client at any time for any reason. In fact, they don't need a reason. And I think that was really important. So then as we started, I say we, it was only me at the time. As I came out with those founding values, then I started to think about some of the behaviors that would bring that to life. And then beyond that, as we've evolved, I've looked for external ways to prove that. Because clearly you cannot say about yourself that you are successful. Yeah or that you're yeah. worthy or that you're respectful you need other ways and means to demonstrate and find that out and during the last six years we've been able to really evidence all of those pieces yeah absolutely what according to you Kirsty is the elephant in the room in our industry gosh well I think 
for me, it's still just a lack of diversity. It's really interesting that when you look at the percentages of men that are running organizations versus the percentage of men that are in communications, it's still wildly skewed. And I know that some of that is women have historically taken on primary carer roles and so have maybe left the workforce. But then let's get them back in again. These are amazing individuals that have got so much to share. Also, I think that historically... It's been a very white dominated industry. And that is more and more telling when you look at the availability of talent at different levels. And the more senior you're looking at, the less available talent in market there is. So again, I think it's really interesting and appropriate that we look a little wider, that we don't just look in our own backyard in terms of, of attracting new talent. So we look into journalism, we look into other forms of marketing, we look into other forms of management and strategy roles and try and invite people from that perspective. And then another area for me is more from a socioeconomic perspective. Very often people from a less advantaged background don't necessarily know about communications as a career. And when they find out about it, they don't necessarily know how to get into it, what the access point is and what their earning potential is. And then when they get into it, studies from the likes of Socially Mobile show that actually they don't progress as quickly. And so I think that's a confidence piece as well. So it's great to see these new programs coming in that are directly tackling some of these barriers that still sadly exist in our industry. Absolutely. Diversity and social mobility, all these are big challenges in our industry. And considering that we are living in a world that is in a constant state of flux, uh, I mean, the world has always been in a state of flux, but with uh, social media and how connected we are, everything seems more immediate. And everything is evolving around us. There are so many crises that we can see uh, that touch each one of us and are touching our industry. So what do you think would be the three biggest challenges facing our industry today? I think you make a very good point around social media. And I think the macro element there perhaps is around this idea of immediacy and response. And I think there's an opportunity for us to just be a little bit more considered. So if you break that down, for me, that's two things there. The first of which is using technology, using AI to help make sure that we can separate the important from the critical and make sure that we know where we're putting our human endeavors and our attention. But then also, I think it's also about just helping people to build their own personal resilience. And so they don't feel this constant bombardment of information so that they can filter a little bit more. And I think actually, as communicators, that's rather our job as well to do some of that filtering and reframing. So I think that is definitely one side of things that like time management, information management. Then I think also there is obviously the last couple of years since we've moved more typically as employers and employees into a hybrid workplace, then that requires a different type of leadership style and it requires a different type of internal motivation for all of us. So those of us that are more extrovert get our energy from outside of ourselves. And so not having other people around actually can be quite difficult. But those that are more introvert get their energies internally. Obviously, that's quite a nice mix. But we still need to come together to balance one another out. The point of having diverse teams with people with different educational backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, different academic backgrounds, is so that we can all learn from one another. And if we're not therefore still working in a very intertwined manner, then we're not getting the full advantage of those diverse teams. But they don't have to always be in the same room. But I think that making the hybrid model work is another challenge that we're dealing with right now. 
Yeah. And do you think that uh, this is just a supplementary thing that I'm thinking of is do you think that you earlier spoke about the PNL model, which puts a stress on this thing? Do you think that the agency model that has existed so far really needs to change in some way? Oh, completely. I mean, there's already quite a lot of discussion in our own trade media at the moment where it's like, okay, those organizations that have been billing on hours, now the AI is coming into play, um, generative AI specifically, then how's that going to work? Clients aren't going to pay in the same way. So there needs to be a, a rethink there. I do also think that as agencies have evolved, especially more international agencies, then they may have numerous PLs. So not only would they have their own country PLs, they may well have sectoral or divisional PLs. And again, as we're moving towards more and more integrated comms and integrated marketing, that doesn't necessarily encourage those behaviors. So yeah. again, back to the earlier point that I made around, you can see what people are trying to do with some yeah. of the way that businesses have been set up, but actually the processes that they've put in place sometimes cause them to trip up a little. And I think having multiple P&Ls is part of that problem. So the way that we've got around that in Milk and Honey is we're actually an employee ownership trust. So I'm surrounded by my bosses every day, which is wonderful. Keeps me grounded, keeps it real. But what's nice about that is that everybody, after they've been with Milk and Honey for a year, becomes a, a co-owner in the business and their shares are held centrally in a trust. And so they then all benefit from profit share at the end of the financial year. So what happens there is that everybody owns everything. So the Singapore team doesn't just own Singapore, they own Singapore and Germany and UK and the US. So therefore, we're always looking out for one another. We're always looking to put the most appropriate, best skilled and most motivated teams in place to deliver. But it also allows us to do truly joined up global work. So for us, that's been something we've been quite purposeful in terms of putting that infrastructure in place. Yeah, that's very interesting. You've answered one of the questions I was going to ask you after on the drivers for milk and honey moving from being an LLP to an employee ownership trust. And so clearly you are looking at the future and you've made this decision. Yes. So when I set it up, obviously there was only me on my own, but I knew that I wanted it to be a shared ownership organization. And naively at the time, I thought, oh, the best way to do that as an LLP, as a limited liability partnership. Quite a number of them exist within our industry and they tend to work quite well. However, what we found there was that that's fine if you want to have a limited number of co-owners in the business. But if you're actually looking for much wider co-ownership, that model isn't excellent. So it took us a couple of years to find the right model, actually. That for us being the EOT, so that's an employee ownership trust. It's something that only really truly exists in the UK and it was only put in place in 2014. So it's still relatively new. I think there's less than 750 companies in the UK that are EOTs. Although interesting to see that there's more and more PR agencies that are going that way. Yeah. But what's nice about that is it's pretty much admin free. It's not free to set up, though. I mean, for us, it was a true consideration. It cost us about £80,000 to change the legal structure. So it is something that you really need to think about. But it was something that was aligned with your core values and purpose right from the start. Exactly. You were on the journey and you came there. Moving from there, during the pandemic, our industry, we got a seat at the table, so to speak, and we were able to advise more CEOs and boards and they looked towards us to show them the direction and show them the path and what could happen. So we took on roles as consultants and advisors, as trusted advisors. 
How do we ensure that we continue to have a seat at the table? Because that seems to be disappearing again. Well, it's really interesting. So I started in a consumer environment. They went into tech, then into brand, then into digital, then into corporate, then into financial and M&A. And what was really interesting about that is that throughout that journey, one of the pieces that I found out is that if you find yourself working into the CEO or through the CFO, then they see you as strategic advisors. They truly see you as strategic yeah. advisors. And as such, any change in strategic advice is sometimes seen externally as a bit of a wobble. Whereas if you go up through more the CMO, then they see it as a creative refresh, which is sometimes encouraged. So I found that from a stability perspective and to be able to really grow and embed relationships, then getting through to the CEO as quickly or the C-suite, the broader C-suite, not just the marketing function, as quickly as possible has been the most valuable. And that way around, it allows us to really be that strategic advisor. However, What's quite difficult about that is obviously the C-suite are looking at things from a multiple audience perspective. They're thinking about investors, they're thinking about their ecosystem, they're thinking about their community, they're thinking about their industry, they're thinking about legislation, trade bodies, employees, shareholders, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's where my slightly jumping around career and having worked at focus on different audiences has been supremely helpful to me. And so that's another reason why, as a business, we've chosen not to specialize in any particular section and not to specialize in any particular yeah. horizontal application because it allows us to have that more rounded understanding and appreciation of communications. And so we're in a position where we can better advise senior leads within our client businesses. Yeah, I think it's very interesting because the joined up approach is essential and that macro view is essential if you are to give good advice. And I noticed when I moved to the UK is that everyone was a specialist. And I came from India, I'd already worked for a decade or more. And so I was a generalist, and I continue to be a generalist, I think. And that was a big challenge, because they didn't know where to slot you. So it's good to hear that people who are generalists bring a lot to the table too. Well, I think so. And I think actually it's really hard to get to the top of your game without being something of a generalist. But mid-career specializing can be something that can accelerate your career as well. So again, I think it's down to individuals. It's yeah. quite nice to mix it up. And one of the reasons why, so as Milk and Honey, one of the challenges that we gave ourselves was to grow to a team of 10 as quickly as possible. And then beyond that, to grow to a team of 30 as quickly as possible. The thinking behind that was if when we get to 10, then we're definitely not selling individuals, we're selling the brand and selling the company. It also allows for people to step back, go on holiday yeah. without everything slightly falling apart or being held together by sticky tape. And then the idea of getting to 30 as quickly as possible is that we brought in such amazing talent, we then needed to give them a proper career path that wasn't just linear, it wasn't just like you step up, but you can create different roles for yourself. You can spend some time specializing in digital and then perhaps yeah. move over and think okay healthcare is more interesting to me yeah. or financial services is more interesting to me or actually I now want to focus more on talent leadership and having that bigger infrastructure gives us the opportunity to be able to offer those wider career opportunities so that was important to us as we were building out the business as well. Yeah and it probably makes sense for the employees who have different needs at different stages and different junctures. And they probably figure out sometimes that, oh, this is not what I want to continue doing. 
So moving on, congratulations on Milk and Honey PR being the highest scoring comms agency in the world on B Corp. And why did you decide to become a B Corp? Again, this was in your quest for external validation for how you run your business and what you do as a business. It's exactly that. And for us, we was looking to say, okay, respect. It means slightly different things to different people, number one. And how do we validate that? I would like to think that everybody thinks of themselves as respectful, but it's also really then helpful to have some behaviors and a path to betterment. So that's when I came across the B Corps movement, which has been up and running for about 15 years now. In the UK, it was a bit slower to get started, although I'm delighted to say that they have 1,500 certified B Corps just in the UK now, which is fantastic. I think there was less than 200 when we got our certification four years ago. So that's really moved on, which has been tremendously exciting to see. And what's great about that, what I really loved about it, is it's a path to betterment. So there's five key areas that they look at. And right now, having recently gone through the re-accreditation, I can tell you there's 530 different areas within those five. So it's very, very thorough. It's not a tick box exercise by any means. But the first one is around governance. And one of the things that they ask you to do is to legally change your articles of association, as we call them in the UK, from being a shareholder primacy setup to a stakeholder primacy. Just to explain what that means, shareholder primacy means the business fundamentally primarily exists to service the shareholders. So that's more from a profit perspective. Whereas stakeholder primacy goes wider. It's looking at the community you're working in, the workers that you have as part of that organization, the ecosystem of who you're working in, the environment and the impact that you're having there, and the broader community and planetary elements. So what's really lovely about that is it gives a a very clear path to what better looks like. And that's what we loved about it. And we felt that that whole piece around governance, workers, community, environment and clients was exactly the right match for how we wanted to demonstrate and to validate how we are respectful to one another, how we are respectful to our clients, how we are respectful to our community and to the environment. But it's hard work. I'm sure it's not just about like filling up some forms and ticking some boxes. It is about living those values every single day. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's a badge that you can wear very proudly because you have to work hard for it. But also you don't just get the accreditation and then that's done. There is an expectation that you will continue to develop. And in fact, the the software that they build the accreditation platform on is brilliant. It's done through B-Lab. And what happens there is that as legislation catches up with what good looks like, then the marks that are allocated for certain questions then go up and down. And so it keeps you on your feet, really, to ensure that you're always on the path to better. Yeah, that's great. I think we need to be very conscious and mindful about this. We've spoken about it in one of the earlier questions, Kirsty, but as a leader, how are you preparing for the future of work? Hybrid technology, mental health, work-life balance, different age groups within the workforce and some set attitudes? Well, I think a lot of them are intertwined. A a lot of it is around trust and respect and it's around making time for one another. We have a, a few little operational rules, if you will. We don't really have rules as such, but so we have a kind of ask, don't tell policy. So we don't go around telling each other what to do. We always ask. And I think what's nice about that is that 
It just means that you have a more respectful, inclusive conversation. It means that you're inviting people to give their input. And quite frankly, if the more senior person who's doing the asking can't share or can't persuade the team that it's a good idea, then it probably isn't a good idea. So I think that's one thing. Another thing that we look at is we've pretty much always had a degree of hybrid working and a degree of flexible working. And actually, I'm fortunate enough that actually probably for the last 15 years, I don't think I've worked a a normal five day week. So whilst there's a lot of conversation around it now, I don't think it's that new, to be honest with you. But again, I think it's just making people feel empowered that they can ask for it. But it's around give and take. It really is around give and take. So, for example, I work a four day week now. I don't work on a Friday. Similarly, our UKMD doesn't work on a Friday. Our group FD doesn't work on a Friday. Our head of content doesn't work on, you know, and then my EA works at a shifted day because we've got an international team. But that's a shift that she requested, not a shift that we've requested. So, again, I think it's just about being mindful and having each other's back. Yeah, and I think the working during the pandemic uh, has shown us that it is all possible to be productive and to do well because, yeah, people were making profits even during the pandemic when everyone was remote. So it's about enabling people to be their best. You've mentioned your work-life balance and working the four-day week. What does work-life balance mean to you? We are in an industry still where the culture is very much about being present and being available. So it's really interesting. And we've had lots of circular conversations internally about this, about what should we make as policy and what should we just be a human being about? So, for example, other than those that are on flexible contracts, because there are some people that live out of the country or live miles and miles away, for those that are in and around the office, be it the New York office, the London office, the Munich office or the Singapore office, we've got a kind of more in than out But again, we don't police it and we leave it down to the individuals. We work together on agreeing what good looks like and what we're looking to deliver both for our own team and for our client teams. And then we just get on with it, to be honest with you. I think sometimes you can overcomplicate these things, but we are a smaller organization. So I guess it's easier for us, but we hire phenomenally talented individuals. We give them space to grow. We get out of their way. And we let them get on with it. And quite frankly, if you can get it all done by half past three, happy days. Yeah. And if some days it takes you till half past six, then yeah. so be it. But also, I think in any creative industry, sometimes you're on fire and you can rattle through things and just brilliant. And other days, you just have a yeah. slower day. You have a bit of a block. Yeah. So again, because people are trusted to do what is right for them, then it doesn't matter. I mean, right now, like lots of organizations, we have unlimited holiday, but we also have a, over the summer, we did a work from anywhere. So right now we've got team members in the US working. We had team members in the Philippines working. We had team members in India working. So again, it's just, I trust you to get on with the work that you want to do. Don't forget they own the business as well. So So it's in their own best interest to do great things. And then if they get stuck with anything, they go to whomever is the most appropriate that can help them rather than just their line manager or their country or head of lead, which again, I think really helps us all grow. And I guess I think you mentioned that you're a small agency and right from the start, you set it in a way that you want to go ahead. But also there is no excuse for the bigger agencies in order to be able to attract and keep the talent and also to enable people to do their best 
I think they must think about what it means. We are on the last question. Complete the sentence, I believe in. I believe in, oh gosh, okay. What do I believe in? I believe in lots of things. I believe that purpose is at the heart of having a truly enriching, satisfying career. I think if you're doing something that has a real life-shifting meaning behind it, and I'm not suggesting that what we do is life-shifting, but it could be. If we're changing legislation, if we're enabling life-saving products and solutions to come to market, if we're enabling new technologies to be funded appropriately through the work that we're doing, if we're enabling meaningful changes in society, then I think perhaps we could see ourselves as being a more purpose-driven entity and industry. And so I believe that purpose is the route to happiness. Wow. What a wonderful way to end this conversation. Thank you <laughs> so much, Kirsty, for being a guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been gorgeous speaking to you as ever. Thank you for joining us this week on the Elephant in the Room podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on any of your favorite platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And if you enjoyed listening to the podcast today, don't forget to write a review and tell your friends. Sign up on the link in the show notes to receive updates on our guest speakers, blogs, and events. And don't forget to tune in every Thursday for new episodes.